Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Matthew Loveridge and today I'm joined by Seb Stott for, instead of a normal road tech talk, something very special. Seb recently became a father I'll ask him about that in a second. But he also gave birth to a very in-depth feature to try and answer the question, how green is cycling? Seb, how's your baby? She's she's fantastic. She's she's quite hard work, but she's very worth it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for asking. <laughs> That's great. So for those who haven't had a chance to read the full feature on Bike Radar, and I do really, really recommend that you go and read it, can you please summarise your findings, Seb? What did you discover? So basically what I wanted to find out was how, um, how, how big is the environmental impact of cycling and how does it compare to, to driving or getting the bus or other ways of getting about. And finally, I wanted to know if, if we had like a huge resurgence in cycling, which is something that the government is talking about as a um, as a way of reducing carbon emissions, um, what, you know, would that make a big impact? Is is, is cycling capable of? Uh, firstly, is cycling significantly greener than other modes of transport, as you would kind of intuitively imagine? Um, and secondly, if if people did a lot more cycling, uh, would that kind of budge the needle? Um, so, so what I found out is that, as you might imagine, cycling is one of the most kind of low 
impact sources uh, means of moving about, but it it doesn't it does have a carbon footprint. So the the most obvious thing that I've that I first thought of, which I assumed at first would be the main problem, is is manufacturing bikes. So you can't make a bike from aluminium and steel and rubber without um, releasing carbon dioxide. And um, so um, I found this fantastic study by the European Cycling Federation, which um, calculated this and worked out that they estimated that the average bicycle has a carbon footprint of um, somewhere around 96 or uh, kilograms of carbon dioxide to, to manufacture the bike. Um, and then um, in addition to that, you have um, another source of emissions, which I didn't really think of to start with, which is um, when you cycle, you obviously burn more calories. Yeah. Um, and those calories have to come from somewhere. And so food, food systems, so that's farming, you know, all of the emissions associated with agriculture. So, so clearing forest for, for farmland, uh, soil degradation. So the carbon in the soil gets eroded um, and ends up in the atmosphere. There's manufacturing um, um, fertilizers, produce a lot of carbon dioxide as well. And then there's animal agriculture is is a big culprit with uh, particularly ruminant animals producing methane and nitrous oxide as well. So there's a lot of greenhouse gases in food and and, um, about a quarter of greenhouse gases come from food production. So if there's an uptake in cycling, then there's going to be an uptake in food um, production, uh, at least... um, on the surface, so so that that's another source of emissions. So it turns out that those are the major sources, and but if you add them up, and you you can work out from that um, what the CO two per kilometer is, and then you can compare it to something like a car. Um, so um, if you do that, then so so I found that cycling has a has a total greenhouse gas footprint of about very roughly, because there are a lot of assumptions here. Um, something, some, well, the estimate I came up with was 21 grams of CO2 per kilometer. And if you do the same thing for a car, it's, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's more than 10 times that. Yeah. So as you, as you might imagine, it's a lot less. But I also found that it was less than taking the bus. And I even found that it was less than walking, because walking is actually a really inefficient way of, of moving. So per kilometer, you burn a lot more calories walking. And that those calories obviously mean more food production um, and those emissions associated with that. Um, I also looked into e-bikes and surprisingly found that e-bikes have um, a slightly lower greenhouse gas footprint because, again, fewer calories per kilometre. And for cycling, that's where most of the emissions come from, uh, according to my calculations. This whole thing revolves around... uh what you'd call a life cycle analysis doesn't it so you've explained for bicycles what that means what you're taking into account so what would that mean for example for the car so a life cycle analysis is um a means of calculating the the cost or the the environmental cost of anything over its lifespan so so you have to add up the manufacturing emissions um decommissioning or, or disposal all of the operational emissions over its whole lifetime and then divide that by in the, in the case of a mode of transport, you can divide that by the number of kilometers it will cover in its lifespan. So then you can compare emissions 
on a per kilometer basis between something like a car and a bike. So you take that, so I mentioned earlier, it was about 96 kilograms of CO2 to make, a, to manufacture a bike. And then you can divide that by the number, the average number of kilometers you could expect a bicycle to travel before it, before it gets disposed of. Um, and I think, uh, again, the ECF, the European Cycling Federation, estimated that an average bicycle can go for about 19,000 kilometers um, over its whole life, his whole lifespan. So that might be over multiple owners. Um, but that uh, then you can divide the um, total emissions by the total number of kilometers in its lifespan. And then you can work out and then you can compare apples to apples. That number, the 19,200 kilometers, how valid do we think that is? Like, what level of assumption? I mean, it sounds like that's quite a big assumption to be making. Yeah, totally. I mean, this analysis is full of um, assumptions that are based on averages. And um, obviously, for some bikes, it'll be a lot less than that. Some maybe uh, a bit more. It, it it does sound like quite a big number to me. Um, like, um, but um, I guess if you in the total analysis, the the total twenty one grams of CO two per kilometer, only about five grams per kilometer was coming from those manufacturing emissions. So if you um, so if you assumed half the lifespan, for example, then you would have double the CO two per kilometer from manufacturing. So that would go from five grams to ten grams. The total would go from twenty one to twenty six. Yeah, you can play around with all those parameters. Um, these are averages that the ECF. Um, estimated. Um, I basically don't have a better source of data than they have, so I'm kind of going with 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 their estimations for those. But if you want to kind of make your own assumptions about manufacturing emissions or or, or bicycle lifespan, um, it's quite easy to do. All you have to do is just add up all the total emissions over the lifespan and divide it by the number of um, kilometers in its lifespan. Taking what you've come up with, I think on reading the feature, and again, Please read the feature. You should really read the feature. It's really good. I think the most shocking part for a lot of people who are reading this is going to be that walking is less green than cycling. Now, on the face of it, maybe that's not totally illogical because we know that bicycles make us more efficient because you can cover a huge amount of distance that you would not cover on foot for a given amount of effort. But taking into account all the other stuff, are you were you surprised about that at all? Yeah, so... Um... When I, I looked at the paper from the ECF and they, so they assumed that every calorie that you burn on the bike is a calorie that you have to consume. And, you know, they looked at averages for the, 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 the greenhouse gas emissions in producing food per calorie of food produced and assumed that if you burn a thousand calories cycling to work, you will eat a thousand calories more, and that will be correspondingly a big chunk of emissions from uh, from the agricultural sector. Um, and I think that's probably a valid assumption if you're cycling long distances. And um, they obviously, in in wanting to promote cycling or, or wanting to kind of um, evaluate. Um, the life cycle emissions of cycling, they're, they're probably erring on the side of caution and making a conservative estimate because that's kind of the worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, because 
I found another paper that looked into what's called a free life study. And this is hyperlinked in the text. Um, I, I just hyperlinked all the references. So you can find them there. Um, so a free life study is where they just um, let people, they, they put half the participants in this big study on um, increased exercise. And they measured the number of calories they were burning through exercise. And then they looked at, and then the other half uh, with the control group, they weren't told to do anything in particular. Um, so it turns out the people on increased exercise, let's say they were burning, I, I'm not sure how much it was, an extra thousand calories a day. They, they didn't eat an extra thousand calories a day because exercise suppresses your appetite to a certain extent. You don't tend to eat all those extra calories. In, in other words, you lose weight. That's, that's why... That's, for a lot of people, this is why you do exercise, yeah. right? Is to lose weight. But, uh, but in, not for us. But um, in the long run, is it not? Obviously, if you're in that process of losing weight during that period, then your energy output is going to exceed what you're taking in. But in the long run, yeah. presumably, there is a more or less kind of equality yes, between those. But, but when you when you lose weight and you become lighter, you you burn fewer calories just resting. Good point. So, so it will equilibrate. You won't continue losing weight until you waste away to nothing. You'll lose weight until you have less body mass, and then you have, you know, you have fewer cells burning fewer calories, and, and then it will equilibrate. But the point is that the idea that every calorie you burn through cycling is a calorie that you must consume is the worst case scenario. And I think that's a valid assumption for cycling. I think for walking... I'm not so sure, but I was I was applying the same logic to walking. This is not something the ECF did. This is something that I looked into for my own interest. And yeah, if you, it may be that that logic of if you walk five kilometers to work or two kilometers to work, you, you probably won't eat every calorie that you burn. Um, so yeah, it's a worst case scenario. Um, the I guess the the second arguably even more surprising finding was that e-bikes are more green than conventional non-powered bikes. Um, did that come as a surprise to you? Because I think a lot of people's assumption is probably going to be that because of what we assume are higher manufacturing energy costs, that e-bikes will be quite a bit worse to begin with. But does that then balance out? Um, what, what does the balance look like for an e-bike? So for sure, um, making an e-bike uh, takes more energy and takes more. Uh, it has a higher manufacturing footprint. Um, but over its lifespan, it's not a huge increase in CO2 from those manufacturing emissions per kilometer. And you also have electricity. You have to use electricity. But um, particularly, uh, one, one of the things I found out in this article was that the UK electricity grid is actually quite green and, and getting better. So the carbon dioxide per kilowatt hour of electricity in the UK is, is particularly low. It's, it's lower than most countries and it's getting lower. So if you plug those numbers in and work out how much electricity an e-bike actually uses per kilometer, it's really small. Like this, the carbon footprint from the actual electricity you use for an e-bike is very small. Um, and then there's the food part. And remember, for a conventional bike, the major source of emissions under these assumptions uh, was um, from uh, food production. Um, 
And of course, with an e-bike, you use much fewer calories per kilometer because you pedal less hard and you go faster. Yeah. Um, So um, that more than offsets the manufacturing and the electricity emissions. Uh, That is strictly looking from a carbon perspective, isn't it? Because we're, we're thinking about carbon emissions, which influence climate change. I know that some people have responded to the article and said, like, what about battery lifespan? What about disposing of those batteries or even other environmental consequences of using, I guess, lithium batteries? Because that's what e-bikes use. I mean, should we worry about those things? Yeah, I mean, th- this is a, a big question that I'm not qualified to answer. I I, I really focused the article because when you talk about environmental impact, that could mean, could, could mean so many different things. Uh, from landfill, plastic pollution, water use, water pollution, like all sorts. Um, yeah, the, the battery manufacturing thing is an issue. Obviously, some of that is um, comes out in the carbon dioxide calculations because the battery manufacturer has some a CO two cost. Um, in terms of like using up rare earth metals, that's obviously a um, an issue, but um, According to the electric car people, and obviously electric cars are going to use up way more of these of these metals than e-bikes ever will. It's a big problem, but I think it's not an it's not an insurmountable problem. Um, there are a lot of kind of ethical issues, particularly with cobalt mining uh, at the moment. But um, I, I think that there is so much riding on the transition to electric cars electric vehicles generally that like those problems will kind of have to be ironed out um and and the other thing about um disposal of batteries is that there isn't much of a market for recycling lithium-ion batteries at the moment but um from the research i've done it looks like there will be and the economy of scale will massively ramp up as all these electric car batteries start to um, come to the end of their life, and and batteries can be can be recycled. Like all of the lithium, cobalt, and other rare earth metals can be can be recovered and used again. Yeah, it's about so, it's about having that economic incentive, isn't it? Because I know that it, it's economic totally, incentives yeah. that drive recycling generally. And I know, for example, with plastic recycling, a big problem has been that the value of plastic has now dropped to the point where it's not worth it for people to recycle recycle it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and maybe there needs to be some policy in place in addition to better technology for recycling. But but one thing to say about recycling is that so a life cycle analysis assumes that you know, you make something, you use it for a certain time and then you dispose of it. Whereas with with recycling it becomes more complicated because the the lifespan of of let's say those the that lithium now can can span multiple vehicles. It could be in a bike, it could be in a laptop, it could be in a car, it could be in a phone. Um, so you, you, you have to account for that and that can actually offset some of the carbon emissions that are in, involved with, with manufacturing it because um, if it can be recycled and turned into something else, um, you, you're kind of getting an extra life out of it. Yeah. So, so that kind of offsets some of that carbon emissions. Assuming uh, there's so not it, it's, too it's great. A complicated, 
sorry, assuming there's not too great an energy investment in that recycling process, of course. Yes, yes, for sure. But um, the recycling, I think, uses a lot less energy than making things from scratch. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's a complicated thing. Um, but, yeah, I completely agree there are more issues than CO2 involved with making stuff um, and using it for a finite amount of time. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with that, but I, I don't necessarily think it's an insurmountable problem. No, and, and that's not a reason to ignore the other findings, of course. Um, you ultimately conclude in your feature, read the feature, everyone, uh, that a return to 1940s levels of cycling in the UK, when a lot of people cycled, that's correct to say, I think, um, would reduce yeah. carbon emissions. That's again, UK carbon emissions we're talking about. Uh, by 6%, but that a switch to electric cars would overall make a much bigger difference. Now, that that sounds like an endorsement of electric cars over e-bikes and bikes, but that's not really a reason not to cycle, is it? No, not at all. So, um, um, so the second part of my question I want to answer at the start was that what, how big a difference could it make if we all cycled lots more for transport? And it's kind of hard to define a benchmark for that, like what is a lot? Um, and it, it turns out one of the most interesting things I found out was that in the 1940s, people cycled six times more per person than they do now. I guess because, you know, people used to cycle to the butchers and cycle to the grocers and, not, you know, you didn't used to drive to somewhere on the outskirts of town to do your shopping and things. So, um, yeah, so I thought, well, okay, well, what would happen if we return to that level of cycling? Because at the moment, the average person in Britain cycles 80 kilometres per year. Which sounds like nothing, which, doesn't it? Which sounds, it's really small. Obviously, that includes like babies and old ladies and everyone in between. It's, um, it's um, yeah, but it's a low number. And um, so another, th another benchmark you could use is um, Denmark. In Denmark, they cycle 12 times as much as we do. So, so even the six times as much per person is is not the most ambitious benchmark you could you could choose, um, but it, it's kind of I don't know. It, I guess it seems more more realistic when you think, well, we used to do that um, in the nineteen forties. Um, so then I I literally just um, plugged in the CO two emissions per kilometer for cycling, um, compared that to CO two per kilometer for driving. And assume, but what if we replaced all of these car journeys with bicycles? Um, and that would say, I think it was 6% of transport emissions. Right. Okay. That's quite an important uh, only, distinction, isn't it's it? It's only 2% of total UK emissions. Yeah. So it's not huge. It's, it's like, it's quite a lot of carbon dioxide, but as a percentage of the total, it's, it's quite small. Uh, and the reason for that is that, um, you know, it's still quite a small amount of, of, of traveling compared to the amount of driving we do, um, it wouldn't it wouldn't offset much of the driving even if we if we if we could do that. Um, so electric vehicles have a lower carbon footprint over their whole lifespan than conventional you know, petrol and diesel cars, but they still have a much higher carbon footprint than a bicycle. Um, so you know on a journey for journey basis, cycling is definitely greener than kind of any car, but because um, 
you you could in theory replace every internal combustion car journey with an electric car journey. Obviously, that would take a long time, but I think the government. So I think I said in the article that the government had mandated that all new cars will be zero emission by 2035. I think they've just moved that forward to 2030. Um, yeah, that's so, that's right. What they've said is from 2030, you can't sell. You can still sell hybrid vehicles, and I think maybe that ends in 2035 now. But okay. 2030 onwards, it either be EVs or hybrids, but no pure internal combustion cars. Yeah, I think it's hybrids with a plug, like plug-in hybrids. Right. Is that right? Uh, so possibly, don't quote me. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure. But they've because um, originally when I when I first drafted it. This article, it was 2040, and then they moved it to 2035, and now they've updated it with a kind of some kind of rule in 2030. So, like, it's not it's not a pipe dream that by 2050 or before we will have pretty much all journeys will be made with electric as opposed to petrol and diesel, and that will have a massive impact just just purely because there are so many kilometers travelled by car. Um, but but make no mistake, like cycling is still greener per kilometer than driving. Yeah. I guess the problem that we have as bike radar is we are a website that caters to essentially hobbyist cyclists, people who do it for pleasure or for sport. So the people listening to this podcast are the converted who we're preaching to. How, yeah. how do we convince people who aren't committed cyclists to replace car journeys with bikes? Obviously, it's a massive question, but like I'd like your take on it. Uh, wow. Um, there, there was a bit of a comment about this in the, um, on the article about how, um, whether, whether, you know, what sort of distance should you be going from just cycling in your, um, casual clothes to, you know, riding in Lycra and, and how, how long does it have to, does the journey have to be to make it worth making that change? But I think, the thing that that made me think of was how in 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 the Netherlands and Denmark, these countries that do massive cycling, in a way they take cycling much less seriously than we do. Yeah, totally. Even they, even though they do it way more, it's um it's completely casual to just get on a bike. There's no mandatory helmet laws. Um, they just ride in normal clothes, and actually cycling is much safer there, by the way, because motorists are so used to cyclists and there's a correlation where the more people cycle the safer it becomes yeah um and cycling is already very safe by the way um you you will live longer if you cycle more despite these ideas like all this like close pass of the day stuff it's like cycling is actually very safe and is much much safer in the long run than not cycling where you have all these like sedentary lifestyle health effects but anyway, that's beside the point. I think having a more casual aspect, attitude towards cycling is probably helpful. And the more people who cycle, it's kind of self-catalyzing because the more people who cycle, the more people will perceive it as safe and valid means of getting about. The more infrastructure there will be, the more cycle lanes. So so I looked at the, in the 1940s, there were a lot more cycle lanes, like really big segregated cycle lanes like that went from town to town. They didn't just go like, parallel to an A road between two roundabouts with loads of like minor roads crossing it. Um, you know, proper cycle tracks. The, the cycling infrastructure was better back then. Um, but I think the other thing is e-bikes. 
because probably a lot of people will be sort of screaming at their whatever they're listening at this to this on saying but it, you know the netherlands denmark these countries are really flat but of course if you have an e-bike that doesn't it, matter it mitigates the hills it makes it feel flatter so i think that could be a huge um uh catalyst for getting people into cycling because particularly if you're not that fussed about you know having the best bike and being really fast and being really fit if you just want to get somewhere then like an e-bike makes perfect sense so i think the the reduction in cost of e-bikes and um yeah you don't have to feel too guilty about having an e-bike because as we've seen like it's not necessarily worse for the environment uh, overall um so yeah i think e-bikes could play a huge role as well yeah it's it's the thing generally of normalizing it isn't it um I I, yeah. I often worry that as cycling journalists, like because we're coming at it from a very like enthusiast and sporting perspective, that maybe we're almost part of the problem because, well, obviously like Bike Radar, we do commuting content, but it's still very much focused on like performance, this latest cool new thing, when in fact that's yeah. not really the issue. What we want is uh, people to have this casual relationship where the bike is almost like an appliance that they just like every yeah. everybody has a washing machine and everyone has a bike that's what we want yeah yeah i mean yeah i couldn't agree more yeah it's just a, it, it should be just a tool and if, if you want a, a super light road bike to go and do 200 miles at the weekend then then great but most people aren't interested in that they just want to get somewhere as quickly cheaply conveniently as possible and uh, there's a study out of australia actually that i found that showed that for journeys under about five kilometers, a bicycle is usually the fastest way of getting there because it's it's less faff than getting your car going and getting it, finding somewhere to park and all the rest. It's less fast than getting on public transport as well. So for shorter journeys under about five kilometers, cycling is usually the fastest way of getting somewhere in a city. Um, so, so I think, you know, the, the poten potential is there it's not like we're asking people to spend, you know, take a huge time out of their day. Um, so if people feel safer, if people just see it as a as a perfectly normal way of getting about um, for those shorter journeys, there's massive potential. I think that's a good place to end on. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on how you get non-enthusiast cyclists interested in cycling for everyday purposes. Uh, but anyway, thank you very much, Seb. Um, please, everyone, read the feature. It's called How Green is Cycling? Riding, Walking, E-Bikes and Driving Ranked. It's on bikeradar.com. I've been Matthew Loveridge. I've been talking to Seb Stott. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, tell your friends, comment on the article. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.